Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 36. So as I mentioned before, we, we finished our series on uh, the seven deadly sins last week, which was a great, a great series, but also sort of a hard series to process and to hear, certainly on our end, a hard series to prepare, um, just sort of overwhelmingly convicting every week. Um, we thought about adding a few more seven deadly sins because there were other ones on the list that we could think of, but we decided we'll stick with the traditional seven. So last week we finished that series, and, and as we've said before, if you've been with us for a while, we, we, are, we are involved in this extended series on the Gospel of Luke, and we're taking just kind of little breaks here in between. And so the seven deadly sins was actually a break in this extended series on the Gospel of Luke. And, and part of the reason for taking these breaks is that the Gospel of Luke is the, is the largest book uh, in the New Testament. And we've been working our way through this book, and this book, this gospel um, by Luke, is a, is a book about God's, about God's spirit bringing about God's kingdom. That's sort of what, what the story is all about. It's, it's God's spirit bringing about God's kingdom through the person and work of Jesus. And Luke has been sharing this message. He's been sharing this message through these stories about Jesus' divine power and Jesus' divine authority. Really, just since the beginning, we started this series uh, in December as we were reading through uh, the early narratives of Jesus' birth and life and even Mary's pregnancy. And so he's been sharing this story all along the way about how powerful and about how authoritative Jesus is. That Jesus has the power to bring this new transformative kingdom here and now. So we, we, we read the stories early on about Jesus being conceived uh, divinely, that his birth was praised even by the angels. We read about his authoritative teaching in the synagogue even when he's a young boy. We read about his authority and, and resistance, his authority over and his resistance to the devil when he's being tempted in the wilderness. We read about the authority he has over the physical body to heal, even to resurrect, as he did the widow's son in chapter 7. We read about his authority over creation and this miraculous catch of fish in chapter 5. And then here at the end of chapter 7, we read about his authority and power, and this is good news for all of us, to forgive sin. To forgive sin, unlike anyone else before or after and here's the story. I'll start reading in verse 36, Luke 7, 36. It says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come eat with them. So this is a story. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come eat with them. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, uh, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and then wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil, with ointment. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who this woman was, what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he said, say it, teacher. And he begins to tell the story. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. Now, one of the debtors owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, the money lender, the money lender canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more, Jesus asked. 
And Simon answers, well, I suppose the one for whom uh, the larger debt was canceled, right? Stands to reason. And he said to him, you judge right. And then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss when I came in, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with this ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much. He was forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. God, speak to us this morning from this passage. God, I pray that we would hear your words. God, they are eternal and they are true. Uh, and I pray that they would pierce us to our heart and to our soul. God, we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at this point in the story uh, in the Gospel of Luke, the word has been getting out about who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. So you're starting to hear and see rumblings from the people. It talks about the, the people in Galilee where Jesus started his ministry. They were, they were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his authority. They were amazed at his power to cast out demons, for example. Even the man with leprosy in chapter 5, he had heard enough stories about Jesus that he, that he felt confident enough to go to him and beg for him for healing. Scripture says even the scribes and Pharisees, they would, they would come from all over the country just to hear Jesus teach and preach. Even the pagan Roman officials would, would come to Jesus, pursuing Jesus for healing and restoration, either for themselves or for uh, someone in their family. So Jesus had been busy, right? And the word had been getting out. And so here in chapter 7, at the end of chapter 7, this Pharisee, who we learn is named Simon, this Pharisee invites Jesus over to his house for a meal. Now, the scriptures doesn't say, they, they don't say whether, whether Simon the Pharisee was trying to um, cozy up to this celebrity rabbi, right? trying to get closer to the source of power and authority. It, it doesn't say whether Simon, like almost all the other instances of Pharisees in the Gospel of Luke, and really most of the Gospels in general, if he was trying to trap Jesus or put Jesus in a bad situation that would make him look bad, or maybe Simon wanted to have an honest spiritual conversation. Maybe he really wanted to engage Jesus at a deeper level. But in any case, Jesus accepts. Now, there's several aspects of this story that I think are unfamiliar uh, to many modern readers. And so it's helpful that, to kind of think through these details and for us to understand what's going on here. In the ancient Near East, in this part of the world at this time, um, it was the custom not to sit at a table, as many of us would do, to eat a meal, but to literally re recline at a table, to lay down at a table with your head closest to the table to eat and your feet furthest away. Remember, this is, a, this is a walking culture. This is a desert culture. This is a dirty culture. And so you're getting really close to the food. You're getting really close to the table, laying down, and your feet are really pointed away from the table. I have maybe an image here uh, that'll give you some idea of what this could look like. See, something like this. 
And as well, and maybe this picture uh, shows a little bit of that, but the, in most of these meals, they were served in sort of semi-open or public areas, maybe like an open courtyard or something similar. And so it was custom that these, these it was sort of understood that these meals were kind of semi-public, right? So that, that people passing by um, could come in and they could listen into the, what was going on. Um, they could engage the host. They could engage the invited guest at some level or another. They could sort of be present. And so people were coming and going. And that was, that was part of this culture. So as we read this story and we hear about Jesus reclining and a woman washing his feet, you're not thinking of this woman sort of crouched under the table. And you're not wondering, well, how did this woman actually end up in this situation? That's how. Jesus is there, he's in the Pharisee's house, a very respected, probably wealthy man in the community. He's there eating this meal, and this woman comes in. But this was no ordinary woman, right? This was no ordinary woman. What does it say? She's a woman of the city. She's a woman of the street. This woman is a sinner. She's a prostitute. That's what she does for a living. This is a woman who lived much of her life in the shadows, right? This is a woman who was, who was ostracized by her community. This is a woman who was despised by much of her community. This is a woman who um, seduced the husbands in the community, maybe seduced some of the sons of women in this community, right? She was a prostitute in a relatively small area. A woman, a woman largely ignored and probably desiring to be ignored until a man wanted to take something from her. That's who this woman was. And here she is in the Pharisee's house at the feet of this young celebrity rabbi. And the story just gets more surprising from there. This woman went to Simon's house. This woman went to the Pharisee's house. She was on a mission, right? This woman was on a mission. She had heard, she'd heard that Jesus would be there, Scripture says, and so she went. Despite all the all the shame that she knew she would endure, despite all the all the looks, despite all the whispers that no doubt occurred, she was she was clearly and obviously and immediately identified in this story as a prostitute. So so there was no question as to who this woman was. They knew who this woman was. She knew that they would know who she was. Yet despite all the obstacles she goes, it, it, seeing Jesus for her was worth every expense, right? It was worth paying any cost. It says when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table, this is verse 37, at the Pharisee's house, she brought this alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she begins to wet his feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair, kissing his feet, and anointing them with this ointment or oil. I have this image of an alabaster flask, this ancient flask. And it was typically something that you would, and when it says ointment, think more like perfume or like essential oil. That's really what we're talking about here. And this would be something um, that, that she would have likely worn around her neck, um, even as a, as a kind of perfume. And it was very, very valuable to her. Let's, let's take a moment to just consider this woman. Consider what leads a woman to prostitution. Consider the emotional and mental and physical, physical state of a prostitute. 
This is a woman who knows how to use her body, but she is ashamed of it. This is probably not the first time she has, she has been here uh, sort of undignified and exposing herself in this way to a man, but it's the first time she's done so without being paid for it. She's doing something very uncharacteristic of herself. She has almost no voice in this community. She has no power in this community. In fact, in exchange for all her shame, in exchange for all that guilt that she experienced, in exchange for the isolation that she experienced in her community, in exchange for all the abuse she no doubt experienced as a prostitute, all she got in exchange for all those things was a little bit of money. And she's got it all around her neck. Most commentators uh, in other stories in the Gospels where this small alabaster flask is mentioned, um, they will say that it's equivalent to about a year's worth of income. That's significant, right? And maybe even more than a year's worth of income for a prostitute. So she has literally this thing, what, what really draws men in, right? This beautiful, arum, this perfume. It's very costly. It literally represents probably more than a year's worth of income for her. This is what she's exchanged all these years for, this. She makes her way to this house. She finds Jesus. She sits at his feet, and she begins to weep. So she's, she's, she's literally washing his feet with her tears. Again, you understand the scenario. This is Jesus. He's been, he's been traveling in the desert. He's maybe wearing sandals at best, maybe barefooted. And I mean, you just, you're caked, right? You're caked with, with dirt and with dust, with mud. And here, her, she just, she's washing them with her tears. It says she lets down her hair. She's drying his feet with her hair, right? So this is about as intimate as it gets. She's literally there with him, weeping at his feet, drying his feet with her hair, completely undignified. She's kissing his feet. And then she begins to empty her alabaster jar, anointing Jesus's now muddy, tear-stained feet, pouring out maybe a year's worth of income. It's interesting to think about this, that she, she cried so hard she could wash Jesus's feet. You know that kind of crying? You know that kind of you know that kind of crying that's just overwhelming, right? The kind that just takes over, the kind that you're sort of embarrassed when you see someone else doing it. Ugly crying, right? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? This is a powerful emotional release for this woman, right? So much so that she doesn't even need water. To wash this man's feet. She's utterly undone. She's, she's casting all dignity aside. She even lets her hair down. And this may not seem like much to us as modern readers, right? Many women in here have their hair down, which is fine. But in the ancient world, for a Jewish woman, um, she could only let her hair down alone or in the presence of her husband. Letting your hair down in the presence of another man was literally grounds for divorce. The, the ancient rabbis would write that, that a woman letting her hair down was on the same level was tantamount to a woman going topless in public. This is a serious deal. And here she is with Jesus. 
with the rabbi. This is a picture of a woman literally laying her all at Jesus' feet, right? What does she have after this? She's got nothing, right? She's got no money. She's, she's now been publicly shamed. She's empty in about every way, emotionally, she's poured out. And Simon the Pharisee is thinking the whole time, what in the world is going on, right? This is my house. This is crazy. Does anybody else in the room see what's going on? Or why isn't anybody saying anything? He doesn't even understand. In fact, he doesn't even say anything. But Jesus reads his thoughts and, and says to him, Simon's sort of saying to himself, right? It says there in verse 39, if this man were a prophet, right? Who is this guy? Because if he was a prophet, if he had all this power and authority that everybody said he had, he would know who this woman, what sort of woman this was. Who's there at his feet, who's, who's touching him. The sinner with her hair down, crying. Jesus knows his thoughts and he says, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And Jesus tells us the parable that we just read, this parable of the two debtors, that there's, there's one who owed a moneylender 500 denarii, which is about, uh, let's say, a year and a half's worth of income. And there was another debtor who owed about 50 denarii, which is maybe a month and a half worth of income. Okay, so you see the contrast here? About a year and a half's worth of income versus about a month and a half worth of income. And the moneylender forgave both debts. And Jesus asks Simon, now who do you think loved the moneylender more? Oh, that's an easy answer, right? I mean, if I had a debt of a year and a half's worth of salary and Jesus said, it's done, well, that's a pretty good day. I mean, it's good enough to be forgiven of a, a month and a half you know, worth of debt, but a year and a half, that's staggering, right? That's life-changing. Jesus looking, it's interesting because what Jesus does here, again, the Gospel of Luke, Luke is a, Luke is a physician, some of you know that. Luke is a physician, Luke is a man with an eye to detail. Luke is a man who sort of knows what's going on and is really intentional about highlighting some of those details. What he says here is interesting. Jesus is looking at this woman, this is a woman people don't like to look at, right? Except in private. You don't want to be, you don't want to be caught lingering over this woman for too long. She's probably a woman who's used to being ignored, people crossing to the other side of the street, not to pass her. Jesus looks into her, this woman's eyes, but says to Simon, right? So he's acknowledging this woman, but he's speaking to this Pharisee, and he says, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? I came into your house, you gave me no water for my feet, yet she has done nothing but wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing me. You didn't anoint my head with oil when I entered, but she has anointed my feet with oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins are forgiven which are many, for she loved much, but he was forgiven little, loves little. This is basic hospitality in the ancient world, right? When, a, when, a, when you invite a guest over to dinner, then, then there is this expectation, right? It would be something similar to like uh, when someone comes in, you offer, you, you, know, you offer to take their coat or their bag or offer them a drink, right? That's just part of kind of, or you ask them to come in and have a seat or whatever. This, this hospitality was that when, a, when you invited someone over in the ancient world, when they came in, 
especially this kind of celebrity, a rabbi. You would wash their feet, probably wash their hands. You would greet them with a kiss, very common uh, greeting in the ancient world still today in that part of the world. You would anoint them with oil. You sort of freshen them up. That was part of this process. And he says, you didn't do any of that. Look what she has done. Look what you have done. Which is interesting because now in this moment, when Simon is thinking this woman is about to be exposed for who she is, it's not the prostitute who's exposed, but the Pharisee. The self-righteous. The religious guy. The community leader, the guy who thinks he sort of has it all together, the guy who thinks he knows how the world works, the guy who's, who's um, you know, he's getting marks for good behavior, is now exposed as the sinner in the story in contrast to the prostitute. It, it seems like this, this Pharisee, this Pharisee wanted a relationship with Jesus, right? This Pharisee pursues Jesus. He wants to bring him into his house, but he wants a relationship with Jesus, it seems, on his own terms. He gives him a seat at the table, but there's no real affection here. There's no extravagance, right? There's, there's nothing even nothing coming close to approaching the response that this woman has in Jesus' presence. It's interesting how these two religious men react to the sinful woman. One writer, Fred Craddock, said this in his commentary on this passage. He says, here are two religious leaders, these two men, and suddenly in the presence of this sinful woman, and how do they respond? It says, one of them has this understanding of righteousness, which causes him to distance himself from this person, right? So in the Pharisee's mind, he's thinking, my, my play here, my, I'm trying to preserve my image here. And so for me to be righteous means to get as far away from this person as I can. I don't want to be identified with that kind of person. I don't want them to, to taint my image, right? The other man, Jesus, he seems to understand righteousness, righteousness to be. You just get in real close. You find those people who are broken. You find those people who are hurting. You wrap your arms around them. You pursue them. You, you honor them. You bring them in. One writer put it this way. We are all debtors. Regardless of our individual morality, we are all broke. This woman realized that she could never pay what she owed, and so God paid it all, right? She's got nothing here. And this is what the cross is all about. No one could ever achieve holy perfection, the holy perfection necessary to stand before God. Sin affects every area of our lives. No matter how good we think we are, right? But perfect, sinless, holy Jesus chose to die for us, the perfect for the imperfect, so that we could have life. Simon the Pharisee, he's blinded to his need by his own self-righteousness. This is the common problem in the Gospel of Luke and really throughout the New Testament, is those, those who are self-righteous, they sort of miss the point. Jesus is saying this whole life, this whole righteousness thing, this whole salvation thing, this whole being forgiven thing, this whole being transformed thing, this whole gospel thing is not about how good you are. Because you're never going to be good enough. It's about how good I am, Jesus says. It's about what I've done for you, not what you've done for me. It's about me pursuing you. It's not about you pursuing me. 
It's not about what, what links that you've gone to to be well-behaved. It's about the links that I've gone to to go to the cross for you. But this woman, she understands her need. And so she pours it out at his feet, literally. Sequence is important in this story, too, so don't, don't miss the point here. Make no mistake that she was not forgiven because she loved much, right? She was not forgiven because she loved much. Instead, she loved much because she had been forgiven of much, right? So she had, she had somehow, sort of off camera, had this experience with Jesus, experienced his forgiveness, and then so she heard that he was coming to town, and she went to show that love, to respond in love to him. She loves because she's been forgiven, one writer put it, puts it this way. Jesus goes on to tell Simon the Pharisee that this woman's sins are forgiven. He doesn't gloss over her sins. He doesn't say, oh, this one's fine, right? He calls out her sin. Your sins are forgiven, even though they are many. But no matter how many and how great the sins, God's grace can forgive them. Jesus is not saying that this woman's actions had earned her forgiveness, nor even that her love had merited it. What he's saying is that her love is proof that she has been forgiven. It's her response to God's grace. What does all this have to do with us? A lot, right? That's the answer, a lot. Take a moment to consider yourself. Just be honest with yourself. Who do you identify with in this story? Where do you place yourself in this story, can you identify with Simon? And I think for all of us, there's probably, we can identify with different people at different moments, right? Different seasons. Can you identify with Simon, the Pharisee, in the story? He's, he's engaging with Jesus at some level, but, but he's letting him in at some level. But it's pretty reserved and, and pretty joyless and rigid and self-righteous and judgmental, right? He, he's, he seems completely unaffected by the staggering forgiveness that Jesus offers. It's easy to be religious. It's hard to love. Do you identify with this prostitute? This, this woman who's broken? She's ashamed, and yet she is overwhelmed with what Jesus has done for her. She knows she has nothing. How, how, how much have we spent compared to what this prostitute has spent? To what degree have we been affected and transformed? To what degree have we been undone by his grace and his mercy? How, how's your love to him? When I think about identifying with the characters in the story, I also think about, what about the characters off screen, right? So this prostitute, at one time or another, had a, had a mom and a dad. This is, this is nearly worst case scenario for parents of a daughter, right? Prostitution. So if you're a parent, if you can just kind of put yourself in this place for a second, this, this woman had parents at some point, right? She had a mother. She had a father. We don't know her story. She's ended up in this really bad place. 
a place we would hope none of our children live. This is worst case scenario. Our, our hearts break for our children when they're, when they're hurt, when they're hurting, or maybe when they hurt themselves or when they hurt others. When our children slip away, some of you have had that experience, I know. Our hearts break when our children are depressed, when our children are anxious, when our children are afraid, when our children are disobedient, when they're rebellious, when they're godless. And yet, as I'm reading this story, what's, what's the reason for this woman's love for Jesus? I mean, he says it explicitly. Where did all this love come from, from her, right? What's the source of this love? She has experienced forgiveness of terrible things. Jesus took all that shameful, vile, wicked past, all the things that she's done, all the things that have done, been done to her. He took that and through forgiveness made that the source of this overwhelming transformative love. I'm going to tell you folks, there's hope. There's hope in those moments. You may be in those moments, your children may be in those moments, your grandchildren may be in those moments, your family, your people you love. You yourself may be in the darkest place you've ever been. God, God can use what you've done. God can use what has been done to you. God can transform all of that shame into worship. That's what he does here. God will say, I will, I will take all the things that you wish you could forget I'm going to take all those things that you wish you could forget. I'm going to make them the reason for your joy-filled worship, right? This is good news for people who sin. This is good news for people who know people who sin. Anybody here? So maybe it's not you, but you know somebody, right? You know, so you, you don't have to mention names here. It's a safe place, but you know somebody. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is this is not to say this story. Um, is any less heart-wrenching, right? This is none of us. Of course, we hope that no person would ever have to endure the trauma of prostitution for survival. And yet, Jesus says, the, the reason she is loving me so much is because of the path that she's walked all these years. All the, all the brokenness, all the tears, all the shame, all the guilt, all the regret, all the violence and the abuse. Like, God is saying, I, no, I don't know. I wish that wouldn't have happened to her. But I'm going to use all of that stuff as the reason for her love. It's going to overwhelm her. How does Jesus end this encounter with this? Pharisee and this prostitute. Again, he looks at her, which is important. He, he looks at this woman. He sees this woman. He knows this woman. He didn't shoo this woman away. He looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. 
Your faith has saved you. So go in peace. Which is really what we want, right? That's what we want. We want to believe that that's true. We want to believe that there, there is someone that can actually forgive us completely. We want to believe that, that hopefully, maybe, there is some possibility for salvation for us. That maybe, at some point, we can actually experience at least some measure of transformative peace. And so Jesus looks this woman in the face, this woman who brings all this baggage to the table, and he says, you're forgiven, girl. That's not who you are anymore. You're forgiven. You've been saved. You just go in peace. You can have shalom now. You can rest now. That's not who you are. We had a... Uh, it's interesting in this passage in, in the Gospel of Luke um, that he, he mentions, that this passage mentions three times that this woman is a sinner and, and three times that this woman is forgiven. We, we had our men's Bible study uh, earlier this week. And uh, my, uh, you guys remember that movie, um, Goodwill Hunting? Anybody seen that? Pretty good movie, 20 years old or something. Um, it's interesting, I've been reading the book of Romans, and repeatedly in the book of Romans, Paul's almost like a broken record, because he's writing this beautiful piece of theology, and he just says over and over and over and over again, you're not a slave to sin anymore. Hey, you know what? You're not a slave to sin anymore. You're forgiven. Hey, buddy, you're forgiven. Hey, girl. You're forgiven. Over and over and over again. And you got to think, why is that? I remember watching years ago that movie, uh, Good Will Hunting. And there's a scene in that movie, if you haven't seen it. Um, the story is Matt Damon. He's this young guy. He's a genius. But he was also an orphan. He was abused. He's got this really terrible story. And Robin Williams is this therapist um, who he's court-ordered to meet with, right? So that's the kind of dynamic of their relationship. And, um, and you know, the, the great movie, they, they kind of deal with each other throughout the story. Towards the end of the movie, there's this scene where, uh, you know, these guys are standing up looking at each other, and Robin Williams looks at him and he says, you know, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And, you know, just like a typical guy, Matt Damon, I know, yeah, 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 I got it. And he goes, no, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. He just keeps repeating this phrase to him. And Matt Damon just collapses. He, he has this kind of ugly scene of crying and weeping. He just This massive emotional release. He just breaks down. He just needed to be reminded that all, all that abuse he endured, it, it wasn't his fault. And he, he needed to be told, told it over and over and over again. And it's as, it's as though that's what's happening in the story. And Jesus is saying, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Live like you're forgiven. Go in peace. That passage we read in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Let him go to the Lord so that the Lord may have compassion on him. Not so that the Lord can judge him, but so that the Lord can have a compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon that's what we want, right? I'll close with this. There's an old song written in the 1700s by Charles Wesley. It's called, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Some of you guys may remember this old hymn. Uh, the lyrics are these. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my dear Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace 
My gracious master and God assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the world abroad the honors of thy name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows to cease. Tis music in the sinner's ear. Tis life, tis health, tis peace. This, this is music. This passage is music in the sinner's ear. This is good news for people who know they are broken. And you know what? It's good news for those who don't. Just like this Pharisee. He thought he was cool. He had it all together. But it was really sweet in her ears who came with this story, who came with so much shame. He said, girl, you're forgiven. That's not who you are. 